Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel. This is uh, 3CR's look at uh, Australian film and uh, other moving images. Today we're going to uh, focus on a film called Sherpa, which is, of course, about Sherpas, people who uh, live at the top of the world and uh, support foreign climbers in their endeavour to uh, reach the uh, highest peak in the land, uh, the world, in fact. Uh, Anyway, this is a fascinating film, uh, but this uh, piece that I've got for you today is actually from the Q&A from uh, Nova that was on uh, last week. So uh, we will uh, let it go so that you can uh, get a bit of an idea of what uh, the making of the film Sherpa was like for the writer-director Jennifer Peden and uh, you can hear a variety of questions and answers uh, that are related to the film Sherpa which is coming up at Nova very soon. Absolutely impressive and very interesting film. I'll let them speak for themselves. You know, as a young aspiring documentary filmmaker, I ended up just kind of just in the Himalayas. Um, I knew a bunch of Kiwis that said, oh, come over and, you know, give it a try. And, and it just turned out that my body worked really well at altitude. And so my very first film on Everest in Tibet was um, for Dateline, SBS. And and that was a decade before I made this film. And, and it really was, you know, I have really, I mean, I really now fully understand that it was because I made that film that I was able to make this film. It was like an 18-minute Really, I hope you don't Google it because it's a bit embarrassing. Um, but you know, I have to narrate it, and I'm really bad at that kind of thing. And but it, you know, it was what it was, and I was curious about how how does it work with Buddhism and the way that Sherpas view the mountain, and then you know these commercial pursuits. How surely that's at odds with each other. So I was kind of drawn to that idea and pitched it to Dateline. I said, "Yeah, go for it." Um, I had to pay my own way and. And, and and made that film, but then the very next year I, I got invited back to work again on a different expedition and as a camera operator and I showed the Sherpas that film and I think that was the moment that they went, okay, no one's ever done that before and I think that's what granted me access to then make this one and I, I then worked on other expeditions and, and I mean, I'd known Herbert you know, I'd spent six months of my life on a mountain with him before I came to make this film and my daughter's named after him. So, um, 
it was a long time in the making and I don't think anyone could have just turned up to the mountain and for the fun of it and made this film because there's so much that you need to know about the intricacies A, of the culture but B, of just the technicalities of working on Everest and, and filming on Everest Was there points in the past where you sort of felt are you almost shocked at the way so many other films whether fictional or factual miss so much of what you've discovered and shown to us about as a people instead of a profession. Yeah, and I think that was one of the main motivating factors, again, for making the film. I just, you know, it was always a, you know, oh, and these great, lovely people, and anyway, back to the main story over here with these, you know, heroic climbers climbing Everest, and to me the main story was always back over here. And, and I tried when I, I was uh, the high-altitude director on on the Discovery series, Everest Beyond the Limit for the season one, I went for three seasons. Um, and I was endlessly doing these little interviews and stories with the Sherpas and all of that got cut out by the producers and none of it ended up in the film um, because it somehow in their mind depleted the hero narrative of the foreign climbers mm-hmm. um, and the obstacles that they were overcoming in their own lives or, or whatever it was. Um, and I just thought that there was room for this, you know, it, it just frustrated me. And, and more so, I mean, I had lots of moments of inspiration such that, um, you know, for example, on Everest in 2006, there was a, a climber whose life I witnessed being saved. He was literally carried off the mountain on a, you know, by the head, on, uh, on a head strap with Herbatashi. And then he went on to write a book and do the public speaking circuit and failed to mention that his life was <laughs> saved by Herbatashi. <laughs> and I just... It, it was people like that that inspired me to make the film. And, and the Sherpas say to me, you know, so often the clients are very lovely to them, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath, and then they'll forget their name within a day, and, and then they'll certainly forget them when they get home and repeat the story. And they're, they're aware of that because they, they are on Facebook and, you know, they can watch YouTube and they can see all of that. Because the, the finished film really gives us... It's, it's so up-to-date in so many issues we're talking about as a society now. You know, it's about privilege and wealth and risking your life for, for commercial reward and different cultures and appropriation. There's so many issues, and it's all happening at the top of the world. I mean, when did you have a sense that you, you were capturing so much and that you were going to have to make so much work in one film? I mean, I... I had a, had a really strong instinct that we had to be on the mountain in 2014 and I was I pitched the idea and I'd attached the two producers um, after Russell Bryce had cancelled his 2012 expedition because he was concerned about the Sherpa's safety. I thought, wow, that's never happened before. And that's what I remember sitting bolt upright in bed one night saying, I, that now is the time to make that film. And by the time I you know, got the producers attached and, and got everything organised and had development funding... We were literally cutting the trailer the week the fight broke out in 2013. And I said to Bridget, we have to get this finance now because I reckon the whole thing's going to blow next year. I really do. And so I had an instinct then. As for the everything else that kind of ended up in the film because of what happened, I could obviously never have anticipated the worst disaster in the history of the mountain was going to happen. Um, in many ways, it was in the edit suite, you know. I think I only knew I had a film when Purbatashi said that he was going to quit climbing. I thought, okay, you know, until that point I was completely panicked. I thought, I don't think I've got a film. 
um, because Universal made it very clear that they wanted the summit and they started to get very itchy feet apparently when I was still on the mountain saying, well, what's the film now? If the thing get cancelled, what's the film? And this may seem strange, but I, I was never, in my mind, making a climbing film. <laughs> kind of. So to me, it didn't really matter, but I knew I had to convince them. Um, Screen Australia remained supportive the whole way through. Um, but I think when I, when I knew Perpetashi had decided to quit climbing, I knew that was a big deal. You know, because there he was at the beginning trying to break the world record for most number of cents, which is a very Western ideal. And so for him to have been so rocked by what happened, which he really was, um, and, and quit climbing completely and discard all those ideas, you know, that's real transformation. And then you know you have a story. And so it's just a question of how else do we plug all this together? Because the main character goes missing in the middle of the film. You're very good in the film about not placing yourself in the narrative and, and not imposing yourself. What what then oh, were your own sort of thoughts and feelings on the day of of the accident when, when so much was in flux, when lives had been lost? Was there a moment, for example, when you thought we need to step away, we don't we shouldn't film this, for example? We how did you how was your own sort of progression on those very what looks like um, you know, a, a period of time when everything was up in the air? It was, um, it was sort of moment to moment. It wasn't a kind of, okay, we stop filming or we keep filming thing. It was, okay. I mean, I was, I, I decided for whatever reason to position myself at the helipad. Renan, my American cinematographer, just grabbed a camera and he was doing his thing. He speaks fluent Pali, so I just completely trusted him to, to do what was right and what's appropriate. My Australian cinematographer was really sick and he didn't leave base camp, he was on a tripod and, and shot some of those long lens shots, the really tragic sh shots of the Sherpas. I, I mean, I was literally filming when um, and a, a lot of the rescues were happening and I hadn't heard, I didn't have a radio on me and I hadn't heard that the rescue effort had become body recovery and a, and a body just entered my screen and I kind of just, I was shocked and I, I put the camera down because, you know, I instinct told me here I was surrounded by Sherpas, it was not okay in anyone's culture to keep filming. So, you know, in that instance I stopped filming, but in other moments then when our young Sherpa guys were coming down off the mountain, you know, some of them were just too shocked to speak, others I knew them quite well and they would say a few things. But later in the evening I went to their tent and I had my camera with me kind of awkwardly going in. And I just looked at their faces and I just... I just said, I'm so sorry, and I just turned around and walked out again. There was just no way I could film that. And Sherpas, they don't... It's very much a cultural thing. They literally are taught and, and told, you don't cry when somebody dies because it, it disturbs their passage and it makes them want to come back. And it's all about getting them to the afterlife. Otherwise they can get trapped in this terrible place, which is what every, every one of them fears. Um, so there's some really specific cultural kind of issues that you just have to be careful of. Somebody said to me, you know, I'm surprised that there wasn't more outward emotion or that you didn't capture more of that, and, and that is the reason why, A, it wasn't appropriate, and B, they don't express it. You actually used two Sherpas you trained up as cameramen, the sort of B cameramen on yeah. the shoot, so some of their footage is in there as well. Yes, yeah, so they were, um, so Hugh Miller and I, the Australian cinematographer, went um, ahead a couple of months before the expedition and 
and train these two guys um, who I'm very much in contact with now. They were just, I mean, of all the film students I've ever had, and I they taught at the film school for a while, they're the best trainee kind of cinematographers I've ever worked with. One of them in particular is really talented. Um, and it was always part of the, you know, I'm not Sherpa, clearly, and I, to make a Sherpa from the, sorry, to make a film from the Sherpa's point of view is, you know, is only, you know, there's only so much I can do. And so every effort went to sort of making sure that we had a great, you know, crew and and, and access to, you know, documentaries, all of that access. And um, so there were certain things like the rope fixing, for example, which we never got to film, but um, all of those things that I knew that foreigners weren't going to be allowed on the mountain to fix the ropes. So we had trained these guys that they were going to film that for us. And they are the ones that film with the GoPro when that um, avalanche comes down, which I do get asked this in every Q&A, so I'll circumvent it. Um, that, so that we were looking through the GoPro material after the fact, um, weeks later back in Australia, and, and uh, the edit assistant came in and said, oh, you should have a look at this. And it wasn't the avalanche. It was just there are lots of avalanches in that icefall, and it was just a snowfall, and, and we didn't capture the avalanche. My Sherpas were... 50 metres above it when it happened, um, thank God, and, and so that was what we used to represent the avalanche. So they got things like that and all of that, and just capturing the sound of them praying mantras mm. in terror, you know, just stuff like that mm. that you just couldn't have gotten in any other way, and, and they did such valuable work. Now, you say then 50 metres, I mean, the margin between life and death is is a few seconds of walking or, or treading. It's the thing I took from the film, one of the many things I took from the film was just the the weight of mortality that must hang over these men permanently. I mean, it's just, I'm surprised they can, some of them can go on because it just seems like a, almost like a game of Russian roulette at some levels. Yeah, and for that reason, Pervitashi's wife, for me, is the most important character in the film because she wears all of that mm. on her face. Mm. Um, you know, and it's just... For them, I think they just, I mean, I think Pervitashi says we go on pretending that it's safe, but that's why they pray those mantras every time they go through and they're terrified. Um, and their wives and children, and, you know, when, the, when Pervit leaves, I mean, that scene is not set up. It was, he was leaving and those kids are really fighting back tears. It's, um, it's just this... You know, it's a, in that culture, in those people, it's just this terrible time of year, every six months, because they, the they do the winter season two on other mountains, not Everest, um, which are training climbs to Everest and then Everest. And, you know, the, you saw that shot where the juniper is burning in that village and you can barely see the sky. That's because they're all so terrified. Just before we go to questions from the audience, I imagine is the 2016 season is, is approaching. I mean, have you got mm. people you're friends with who are going to go back up there this year? Who are going to work again? Yeah, so I, I, I see the Sherpa posts on Facebook and I've been communicating with a couple of them just in the last few days and they're all they're en route. I think they're at base camp now, setting up those tents again, the big dome, all of those things, and the clients will arrive in the next couple of weeks. They'll start delivering the tea and the hot towels. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh. You're on Showreel with Annie and uh, we're listening to a Q&A with uh, writer-director Jennifer Peden that was held at the Nova Cinema in Carlton about her film Sherpa and we'll continue. 
So the, yes, the question was, um, yeah, the client's outlook and, and the fact that they weren't voluntarily walking down. They were they were waiting. In some cases, they looked a little annoyed. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's a really hard thing to describe, and you're absolutely right. You know, for all of us sitting here, it seems really obvious. It's like oh, those poor people. Let's just let them be and go home. And even the American who says the best way to show my respect mm -hmm. for the Sherpa community is by leaving, mm -hmm. he could have said that three days earlier, mm -hmm. but he waited till it was cancelled, you know, with all due respect to Tim, and I've known him for a long time because he was on one of the other expeditions that I was on. Um, and he is a, he is a good guy, and he's learnt some Nepali and bothered to kind of learn some of the language. And, but, I mean, the way I see it is that... <coughs> I mean, in their defence is the only thing I would say is that they are kept very separate, I think deliberately, by Russell Bryce. I think he knows that it's such an uncomfortable truth to know that the Sherpas are doing all of this work and that possibly people's ethics would kick in and that they would probably not want to come on the expedition to start with. The other part of it is that they're away on this other mountain acclimatising the whole time. So they were up there when he when the avalanche happened and they didn't see the grief. They didn't have to look at those Sherpas' faces and see how devastated they were. And and they have a singular focus. They've spent months of their life getting organised to do this and get the money to do it. And not all of them are rich. Some of them are very rich, but not all of them are. And, and it's just a real inconvenience because when you don't... Like that thing when you get to know someone, you get to know their story, which is what I was running around doing. My objective was that they were kept away from that, and so they didn't know what I knew. Um, the other part of it is that they didn't understand a lot of what was going on, whereas I had the benefit of translators, and a lot of them have come to see the film since, and they've 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 sort of expressed surprise to the extent to which they didn't know what was going on, and feel a little bit humbled by that. Um, and their response to the film universally has been really amazing and, and good. Um, the guy that calls them terrorists, I don't think it's going to be on Discovery Channel, so I'm sure he'll see it then. <laughs> <laughs> Just one way of looking at this, if you know, Russell working with Berber is, is still one of the best guides and still, still generally has the concerns of the Sherpa at heart. How bad are some of the lesser expedition owners? Um, I haven't been on those expeditions, but, you know, just traipsing around base camp as I did, you know, um, they don't have nearly the setup that Russell's Sherpas do. His Sherpas essentially have the same setup that his clients do, which is really great to see. Um, a lot of them are just intense, sort of sitting on rocks and that kind of thing. Um, you know, interestingly, it's a lot of the Nepali, not necessarily Sherpa, but Nepali operators that are the cutting corners and, and the ones giving them double loads and um, not looking after them. A lot of the foreign, not all of them, but there's a handful of the foreign expedition operators who are really good at looking after their Sherpas. Um, you know, they, they try and bring regulation to the mountain. A lot of the problem is the, the government um, and that there is no regulation, so anyone can run an Everest expedition and, and you know, not look after the Sherpas. But... Um, I mean, my beef with them is, you know, don't keep the clients so separate. Like, make it, you know, include them more mm -hmm. um, and allow them to have more of a, a relationship. Because um, usually it is just 
right towards the end of an Everest expedition, you know, for the final summit push, Russell, in Russell's expeditions, he'll, t he'll team them up with the Sherpa that you'll be climbing with. And so you're sort of, you know, hi, nice to meet you. You know, you haven't even met them up until that point, and then you climb the mountain together, usually not even staying in the same tent. Um, and they'll do everything for you and change your oxygen bottle. And, you know, I've seen Sherpas literally, you know, feeding the clients water and changing the bottle and clipping and unclipping the rope for them and all of these kind of things, which are all of the things that I imagine that we would have been showing. Um, yeah, and then they come back down and the Sherpas complain that then they don't even remember my name. Would you be happy if they just closed Everest? No, because I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that would have a, a terrible effect on the Sherpa community. And, and I really did try with this film to not make enemies, you know, or, or not not create goodies and baddies necessarily. It was about, you know, we very deliberately dove into the shades of grey to sort of show that it is very morally complex mm -hmm. and without the foreigners that they haven't got an industry and this industry is pretty fundamentally important to their economy. You're dealing with a very, very poor country. And so, I mean, but I, I would hope that better regulation is brought to the mountain and, you know, personally I think it's a, you know, get fly the loads over the ice fall so the Sherpas don't have to do that work and, and you know, there's all sorts of suggestions. It's not my place to say because I'm not really in the climate community. I think that's the other thing. It would have been hard for anyone in that industry and in that community to make this film because mm. of fear of pissing people off but I had no mm. ties to it. It didn't worry me. I've got no intention of climbing Everest. So... Having worked on it, you know, when I was younger, I don't want to go back there. And so, I mean, I've heard all sorts of suggestions from... I mean, Nepalese government have recently said that they won't allow stunts now on the mountain, mm. which is good. Um, other people are saying you should just make it no oxygen, you know, which would probably wipe out about 95% of the people because it's very, you know, oxygen is... When you say wipe out, that means they can't go. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I just think it's, it's almost physically impossible. Um, there's only a handful of people that can really... And you need to be really experienced and really know, having climbed other 8,000-metre mountains, to know that your body can do it before ever attempting something that high. Yeah. Cool. Hands everywhere. Um, one of the things that intrigued me was the fact that you filmed a really potent piece of industrial action. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether whether um, it actually helped the Sherpas get some of their demands when the powers that be knew that the whole thing was being filmed mm -hmm. in terms of putting it on the record. Do you think mm -hmm. your film had any effect in, in backing them up in their industrial demands? So the question is about the film following essentially an industrial dispute and mm -hmm. did the film, the fact that I was there filming it, give any impact to it? Camera give weight to their demands. I'd like to think so, but yeah. <laughs> there were so many cameras there. What you don't see on Everest is that on every expedition, on our expedition alone, and every now and then you do see other camera operators on our expedition who are not from my crew. There's like was three camera crews on my expedition. There's 38 other expeditions. There were cameras everywhere. And not in some of those initial meetings, because everyone was too scared that the Sherpas were going to throw rocks at them. <laughs> they didn't throw rocks at me. And um, they're very good to me. 
Um, but then by that time that final meeting happened with the, the ministers, there was cameras everywhere. <laughs> it was insane. And the Sherpas were pushing people out of the way so I could get a better camera position to do that. But So I think they were aware that this film was being made, but I think the depth of their anger and grief was so great that it was that was happening despite me. That very first meeting that happened when they were all yelling and saying, we can't step over the bodies of our brothers and... That was filmed on iPhones by my Sherpa team. It wasn't. A, I, I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to go down there, and so that stuff was happening anyway. It really was. Um, but I think what what that whole thing made the Sherpas realise was that they had more power than they had realised, and that's the defining. That's why it's such a significant change. Because yes, things did improve after that, and apparently all of their demands were met. Um, I think there's still a lot to change and there needs to be more regulation, but, um, you know, I think they they proved really once and for all that Everest can't be climbed without the Sherpas and so I don't think they'll be taken for granted so much in, in the future. Yeah, I'd just, just like to thank you, Jennifer. Um, I was at base camp on the 18th. Wow. Of, uh, of 2014. I actually left at 6 in the morning with my party, uh, just we were just doing the hike, not, not, not none of the mountaineering. So we saw a lot of the grief as we descended through the villages. We saw a lot of the grief and a lot of the fires that you you described. But I came off the mountain thinking that the story of the Sherpas is well, the mountaineering piece of it is only a tiny fraction of their lives. They live incredibly hard lives up in those bleak, stony mountains where we know with every single brick that builds their beautiful lodges has been carried or cut by hand, or every piece of wood has been hand-fashioned, and every piece of glass has come up on the back of a yak or something like that. I was incredibly impressed with the durability of these people, and never mind that they're adapted to altitude, just adapted to the incredibly harsh conditions. I imagine there's so much you, more you could have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How yeah. long was your first edit? Oh, I'm trying to remember, we were editing, I had about 10 weeks of just assembling material and getting everything transcoded and translated, and, and then there was another four and a half months editing, which actually is relatively short for a feature documentary. But, I mean, there's so many stories that you could tell, and there was a whole storyline of this one beautiful young Shapani girl called Yangji and we put, um, if you go to the Sherpa Film website, which is sherpafilm.com there's all these great little behind the scenes clips and we put all of this whole segment of her deleted scenes because she ended up having to get cut out of the film because she never connected directly to the drama mm. she's a perfect example of that she's probably 28 years old, her um, father was killed in the icefall on Everest um, having worked for 10-15 years as a climbing Sherpa. As a result of that, she had to quit school so her support her mother to start working um, when she was 15 years old so that her younger siblings could go to school. Um, her mother then went off and remarried. She now looks after her 94-year-old blind grandmother. who's just this incredible woman and she wanted to climb Everest, I think, to connect to her father. Um, but also because she needed a start in life. She'd just been so unlucky, you know. So there's just... I mean, that whole valley is full of these stories, and I just chose to follow 
one because you always you know you have to focus and you have to find your story through really one main character um, or a couple of main characters. But yeah, you, you're right, and I would encourage everyone to go there and visit because they need the you know they need the money in the economy. Tourism is the biggest part of the economy. One more question. Oh, this lady was. Um, I thank you for making the movie. I've been enjoying it, so thank you. And, and great to see the story of the Sherpas. When you know, I've seen the Everest movie and read lots of books about mountaineering. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I was just wondering what advice you might have if somebody was wanting to visit Nepal, and so that you could, put, you know, put money into the economy and everything, and obviously visit Nepal. You know, it's a beautiful country, but to avoid actually exploiting people. Can you visit Nepal without exploiting the community? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it has it, it comes from us. You know, we have to talk to whoever you choose to go with. And there's lots of really good companies doing, you know, great stuff over there. And it, it is definitely really important to go back there now because they they need because of the earthquake they need it more than ever now. And everything is, you know, it's I mean as safe as it can ever be. It's it's fine to go back. Um, but I think it is to really ask those questions. And I say this to people who ask the same question about choosing an Everest expedition company. You have to ask them, you know, what are your Sherpas getting paid? What are the conditions? What's their insurance? You know, all of those things. That's it for Showreel this week. Coming up next is Published or Not. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.